Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Christianity Today and Kairos Partnerships. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Douglas Moister. I am one of the co-hosts for the Monday Morning Pastor. Uh, really glad you joined us today. We're looking forward to the conversation that we're about to have with Dr. James Bryan Smith, who many of you are familiar with his book, uh, with his trilogy, The Good and Beautiful series, which he just released a new one, The Good and Beautiful You, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, before we jump into the interview, just wanted to remind everyone, um, season seven is coming to an end here uh, in the next two weeks. We're really looking forward to our August off, where we get a chance to practice what we preach and rest. For a time, we will be back in September uh, with a whole season of brand new episodes. And um, unfortunately, uh, during sep- during our, our August time, as many of you have heard in the months before or in the last few weeks, that JR will be transitioning on from being with us um, with his blessing. We're excited. Uh, Bob Hyatt and I will be hanging out in the co-chairs together, continuing to provide encouragement and undergirding for pastors on the hardest day of the week. Um, again, if you have not had an opportunity to leave us a review, we ask that you would please do so. Also, if you will find if you find this interview encouraging, we ask you to share it with another pastor. Our hope is that we can see uh, the pastors in the U.S. and in the world encouraged through this ministry as we continue to encourage and equip pastors. Our guest today is Dr. James Bryan Smith. He is the author of the Good and Beautiful series, which includes his newest book, The Good and Beautiful You. He has earned his MDiv at Yale and his DMIN from Fuller and is a theology professor at Friends University in Wichita, Kansas, where he also serves as the director of the Apprentice Institute for Christian Spiritual Formation. He is a founding member of Richard J. Foster's spiritual renewal ministry called Renovare. He is an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church and has served in various capacities in the local churches. He is also the editor of a Spirit Formation workbook and devotional classics with Richard Foster. He has done so much in the world of Spirit Formation over his entirety of his career, and we're really grateful to have our friend, Dr. James Bryan Smith, with us today. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Hey, Dr. Smith, thank you so much for joining us on the Monday Morning Pastor podcast. I know that uh, many of our listeners are going to be familiar with you, but for some that aren't, can you tell us a little bit of your story? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, and thanks for the work that you guys are doing. It's it's important. It's crucial. Um, Well, yeah, I'm a college professor at Friends University, been here a long time, but um, I worked with Richard Foster and Dallas Willard in the early days of the spiritual formation movement. We started Renovare back in 1988 together. So um, been working in that world of Christian spiritual formation for a long time and, and writing in that area. So yeah, that's, that's what I do. I'm also active in the local church, always have been. I'm ordained UMC and I'm a teaching pastor at Chapel Hill United Methodist Church in Wichita. I preach once a month and help uh, lead worship every Sunday. So I'm I'm a big fan of pastors and the church. That's always been something that uh first of all, it's really good to have you on. I was sharing earlier my 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 wife has led uh the trilogy um books for studies for a bunch of folks within our church. It's been deeply impactful for us and we're going to talk about your book here, um the newest book coming up in 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 a while. Uh, but before we jump in, you've been part of the conversation of spiritual formation for for years, and I, I would even say you're one of the leading voices 
Um, what is encouraging you and what is discouraging you as we are kind of in the space where we are right now, thinking through the place of spiritual formation in our in our culture? Mm, that's a great question. Well, I uh, what's encouraging me is that the interest in Christian spiritual formation uh, continues to grow. You see pastors of spiritual formation. You see uh, master's programs, doctor of ministry programs. You, it's just lines of books. Uh, it, it, so the the interest has really grown, spe- particularly from when we started back when we started Renovari in 1988, and through most of the 90s we got picketed. Like you know we, but somewhere in the 90s into the into the aughts we went from picketed to popular, and 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 that was great to see people saying, hey, there's something more to to being a Christian than just being a member of a church, uh, that the discipleship at a deeper level is important. So that hunger is very encouraging to me. Um, I asked Dallas Willard before he passed, if he had any concerns about the movement and, um, and he died eight years ago, but he said he would, he was concerned that there would be an emphasis on the practices or the disciplines, um, to the detriment of the internal change, the character change, the transformation of the person. And I think that's true. I think that's happened. I think um, you see, I, I get a lot of books across my desk that are uh, spiritual formation books, and they're almost always about practices. And practices are important, but if you if you take them away from the the whole process of formation and isolate the disciplines themselves, they can become, I think, detrimental to some sense. You can begin to isolate them. They can become legalistic. They can become the focus of what it is. So, you know, oh, I did these disciplines. I did Sabbath. I fasted, um, apart from character change. So that those would be my, my answers to those. Great question. So, Dr. Smith, you talked about in the writing of your newest book, The Good and Beautiful You, um, that you rediscovered the beauty and goodness of your own soul uh, in the writing of it. So tell us a little bit about what that journey looked like for you. Yeah, so um, back in 2009, when the the first three books were just coming out, I I was with Richard Foster. We were having lunch at it. We were at the Christian Booksellers Convention. And over lunch, he said, um, these books are going to, they're going to be successful. And I went, oh, thanks. And he said, no, this is a problem. It's going to be a problem for your soul. <laughs> and I said, oh, I don't, you know, I'd been in, I'd written books and been in, in this world for a long time. And uh, I just didn't compute. And and he was very serious. He had a grave look on his face. And he said, no, you need to write this down. You need to, you need to take this lightly in your soul. And I wrote it down because he said to, but I, I didn't pay any attention to it. But he was right that over the course of the next few years, these books were actually really being used uh, in in all denominations. It crossed denominational lines. It was in a dozen languages. I had no idea what was happening. Um, and But with that comes some strange things that I had never experienced. And Richard was right. Uh, I began to to take my eyes off of God. I began to focus more on ministry success. Uh, I was more concerned with overseeing a staff of people and making sure that the bottom line was there. And, and, I, and I just let that slip. And until at a certain point, my wife noticed it and she said, I think your joy is gone. And I went, yeah, I think you're right. And so through a series of discussions with people who I'm close with, I ended up uh, actually going to counseling. I actually found a therapist who was incredibly helpful. I'd never done that. It was scary. But I, I bared my soul and 
found a, uh, that uh, my soul was good. I, I've, I found that uh, there was there was something inside of me that was longing for wholeness, and it was my soul, and it was longing for restoration. It was longing to be uh, reconnected to God. And so I went through a journey of a few years just focusing on restoring my soul. And at that point, then I realized that I could write this book. Uh, I'd always known I needed to write this book because while our God narratives are really bad for a lot of Christians, our self narratives are pretty bad too. So, but I wasn't ready to write it prior to that. So that, that going through this sort of dark night for me enabled me to get to a place where I could really look at the nature of, of my soul and see how amazing it is. You you start off the good and beautiful you by making a distinction between the self and the soul. I wonder if you can tell us how you're using those terms and what you mean when you say when we focus on ourself, our sacred soul is neglected. Yeah. So the way I'm using those, and that's a good distinction, Bob, is is um, okay. There's the human person. You know, all three of us talking to are human persons. But how do I think of myself? If I think of myself as a self, which is really the what developed in the 20th century, the view of the self is I'm an isolated individual who's in competition with other people. I'm a carbon-based life form that exists for a time, and then I'm going to die. And while I'm here, I need to eat, drink, and be merry, or be really successful. So the idea of the self has has emerged in the 20th century as the the, the primary way we see the human person. And what what's gotten lost is this idea that I am an embodied soul, that there is a spiritual dimension to me, um, that there is this non-physical reality called my soul that's intertwined with my body. They're inseparable. But that's that depth of who I am got lost. And and now we've just sort of agreed that reality is secular and that we are just uh, organisms. And so what I'm hoping the book does is, is remind people of uh, this idea that you have a, a soul that was designed by God and is it ain't going anywhere. It has deep needs. And all of those needs can be met ultimately in Christ, but but uh, you can't neglect your soul without really destroying your life. So I'm thinking about this from from sort of two perspectives. One, as the perspective of the pastor who's listening, hearing this ab- about you know, am I neglect thinking? Am I neglecting my soul? Am I feeding my soul? Or even if that's the right language, and then even from the perspective of how do we maybe bring some of these ideas into the normal day, everyday rhythm of our churches, of our congregations. And so I, I, I don't want to push in too many different directions, but I am wondering, like, how would you, how might this play out for a pastor who is recognizing that there's a, there's, he's noticing that he's spent more time on his self than his soul. Mm. Like what, what might that look like? Oh, great. I love that, Doug, because, um, yeah, Look, we we measure church success by the ABCs, attendance, building, and cash. And that's just, that's the metric that everybody has just adopted as the way. And so it's easy for pastors to begin to think that my value is, is in increasing those three things. That was never the call. Jesus never said, go therefore and build big churches. Uh, our call is first and foremost to guard our hearts, to guard our souls. Uh, I lead pastors retreats, and the first thing I say is, if you're not going to take care of your soul, please leave the ministry. Uh, 
It's the most important thing. It's your most mm. important job is for you to care for your own soul. Not narcissistically. It's not about you being all selfish and I don't know what, sitting on your deck eating bonbons. That's not what I mean. Caring for your soul means that you are acknowledging that you have these deep needs, a need to be uh, loved unconditionally, a need to be uh, chosen by your maker, a, a need to see your your story as sacred, um, a need to be connected to the transcendent, which is God. Those are needs. And so I, that's job one for me. My, my most important job is that I stay connected to that and nurture that. When that happens, then everybody around me is blessed. My family is blessed. The work I do in ministry is blessed. When I neglect that, everything is lost. So that's why it's so, it's so important to, to begin seeing it that way. And then if I can jump your question where it went to is when you're in the pulpit looking out, you are seeing sacred souls. You are seeing mm. these embodied souls of people who were foreknown by God before the foundation of the world. And they're not just commodities. They're not just checkbooks. They're not just numbers. These are sacred people in those pews who come with this transcendent longing. That's why they've come to church is because deeply embedded in their soul is a need to be connected to God and to have their story be bigger than just their little puny, I'm a self. Mm. Yeah. So, so good. We, I think we have, we've, there's a truth to the idea of the crucifixion of ministry and of pouring ourselves out for the sake of others, but we've overemphasized that and lost the idea that the best way I can love my family, the best way I can love my church is to take care of myself so that I remain present and have something to give to them. That self-neglect is not a spiritual value <laughs> or discipline, you know, but self-care is. It is. It is. Yeah. Self-care and soul care. I mean, that's, that's what it is. And we're, and then, you know, you may have noticed I, I've said almost every time I say soul, I say embodied soul or ensouled body because as Christians, we've not done that well with, with our bodies. And there's a reason that the second chapter of the book, I mean, after the introduction, the very first chapter really is about the body because um, our bodies I mean, we just can't bypass these things, you know, we're designed for sleep and rest and nutrition and touch and connection and all these things, these incredible bodies, they're not bad. Uh, as Christians, sometimes we have negative views of the body, but our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made and are to be cared for as a part of caring for our soul because they're, they're united. Yeah. I, I think I, I, my, my brain was, moving a million miles an hour when I read uh, that you quoted Aqu Aquinas saying the soul is the form of the body. Um, so one. some of us, yeah, it's a deep one. And so, you know, you've got like three minutes. Can you unpack that for us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so, so every, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, okay. So everything has form. Everything has a form from your dog to a, a rose petal to you and me, where everything is formed. And so um, the, the soul, as it was designed, was designed to be connected to, to these bodies. And, and that's a very Christian, very important distinction. Um, the Greeks were the ones who saw the separation of the soul and the body. And even the movie Soul, that, that wonderful Pixar movie, which is really lovely, but it gets it wrong because it, it, when the person dies, there's this little blob of something that floats on. And I just thought it was fascinating that in that movie, they didn't know how to, I read, um, 
an article about the the illustrators because they 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 debated for almost a year how are we going to depict the soul without a body, and they didn't know how to do it, so they ended up you know putting a mustache and a hat and glasses on the on the blob, so we'd go oh that's a person. <laughs> Because <laughs> we don't know mm. a blob without it having a body. <laughs> but as Christians, we really believe in the importance of the body. So the soul and the body, the form, they're, they're united. And it's it's crucial that we see um, that. The, the soul has form. The body has form. One of the the chapters at the heart of this book is you are made for God. And I just found that so interesting because it, it, it's so contrary to the spirit of the age. And I think even to how many people, even Christians actually live as though in some ways God is there for me, you know, but I, so I'm wondering just as you conceptualize it and as you are talking about the good and beautiful you, what does it mean to be made for God? Well, I'm glad you you pointed that out, Bob, because I think that's really the central chapter to get at this idea that our souls were designed to be in communion with uh, with God, with the transcendent, and and by transcendent that that which transcends us, and I think it's why we love things like beauty, because beauty is one of the transcendentals. Beauty, goodness, and truth are the three transcendentals, and and. As human persons, we know that we're made for those things because we naturally love that which is beautiful and good and true. We're naturally abhorred by that which is evil, ugly, and false. And so that's that's a part of the, the, the transcendent longing that's in us. And I don't mean to go all like the romantic poets and all that when I say transcendence. I'm not like, you know, it, that's not where I'm going, leaves of grass or something. Mm. Let's go roll around and experience some sort of thing that that transcendent longing is is built into us and that's why i think the first commandment is you'll have no other gods before me because we are really prone to have other gods before god whether it's work or our sports team or money sex power whatever it is there there's that's that need to be you know for the transcendent that 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 longing um, uh, Michael Cusick, I don't know if you know Michael, but he has a book called you know, um, Surfing for God. And it's about pornography, which I think is fascinating because he says, look, when, a, when somebody is surfing for pornography, they're surfing for God. They're longing. It's a transcendent longing. When someone paints their face and goes to a football game or a soccer game, it's a transcendent longing. They're longing to get in connected to something bigger than them. But we were designed to be in, in relationship with the Trinity. So immersion in Trinitarian reality, that's, that's that longing that's built into it. And I've got to find that somewhere. All those other things are going to disappoint me. My, my football team is going to disappoint me. Sex, everything's going to disappoint me except the Trinity. And that really is kind of the, the, the safety net behind the concept of a good and beautiful you. Like th this is this is what distinguishes what you're talking about from just general self-help, self-esteem kind of stuff, because, yeah, I am loved. I am valuable. And that the danger is, is that I would focus on that to the exclusion of I was made for God. Yes. Not for myself. And it seems like that's that's kind of the yes. central thing here is that that idea of self is autonomous 
but that idea of a soul is connected to others mm-hmm, and to mm-hmm. God. Absolutely. And and even our story, I know chapter nine is you you have a sacred story. I, I think we want all of us want our lives to have some significance, to be connected to something that matters. I mean, if, if we get to the end of our lives and say, well, I, I just, you, you didn't matter. I mean, that's a deeply painful thing because woven into our souls is this need that for my story to matter, even though there's brokenness and, and, and seasons of pain and suffering and loss, still, I want my story to matter. And that's, that's the same kind of thing. It's built into us. So, I mean, you may remember the, the old SNL character, Stuart Smalley. He was the sort of, uh, the, the caricature of the bad therapist, you know, he'd say, look in the mirror and say, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it. People like me. Uh, yeah. I'm good enough. And just, so, but yeah, by looking in the mirror and saying that, mm, you know, that's pretty thin. I need a deeper foundation. And the foundation is that, that before I was made, the creator of the universe designed me and wanted me to be here and said, let there be Doug, Bob, and Jim, you know, that that's, that's the foundation that we can build that on. Not narcissism, not sort of self-help, but but uh, the Trinity is establishing my worth. And I think that's the real. That seems to be the huge distinction from this Christian idea of spiritual formation, opposed to just spiritual formation, right? Like there is this this the, the transcendent moment, uh, or the transcendence that we all long for is not connected to just me, but it's connected to God. It's connected to our community, our churches, and those kinds of things. And it's interesting because I really appreciate how you frame the book around toxic false narratives and true narratives. Um, and they're all pointed. I feel like each each one of them was was really well thought out. It, it really seemed to land uh, on both my wife and I, like these are really powerful and pointed. But you know, you, you work with college students, you work with graduate students, you've been, you've been living for a long time. You're, what are the certain toxic self narratives that seem to stick out more within the church than, uh, especially in our time? Um, or maybe ones that seem to t- stick out really, um, really big in pastors. Um, and why do you think that those, those ones seem to be the ones that are just really lighting up the dashboard at the moment? That's a great question. And I think the number one, the one number one toxic narrative is I'm not enough. That's the one that I hear the most. If I listen to my students, if I, when I, when I read their papers, um, I mean, there were, I had a student last semester and, and her final paper, she was just really addressing that I've lived my whole life with the narrative that I'm not enough. And it's just in the air. It's, 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 we're swimming in this. We don't even know it, but everything is constantly evaluating us on the basis of, as Henry Nowen said, those three things, how I look, what I have and what I do. We're being, we're, we're being evaluated on that. We're evaluating others on the basis of that. So we see someone who's attractive or talented or has money. We think, oh, they've got it made They're They, they win in the game of life. Um, but you know, I've met really wealthy people of successful people, beautiful people, a talented, attractive, nobody wins that game. It's very precarious because there's Mm -hmm. somebody better, smarter, faster, has more money, more talent. Uh, it just doesn't work. And when you see someone who seemingly on that scoreboard seems to have won and they still say, yeah, but I'm not enough. It just tells you there's, there's a really dark voice that 
is saying that to us in in different ways. Somehow I am not enough is the number one toxic narrative. So if we can stick with that toxic narrative of, of I'm not enough, I, I, I agree. I think that's the one that I hear the most as a pastor. Uh, that's the one that I hear the most as, as a parent of teenagers, a son and a daughter. Um, and just even my wife and I were having a conversation about this last night around bathing suits of like, mm. you know, well, when I get this bathing suit, I, I look like this or, you know, this and that and the other thing. And, and it's just, we're just noticing how this narrative is just in the air that we breathe. So let's, let's move it a step deeper and ask the question of like, well, like what is the truth that God has and what are the practices and the rhythms that would help a pastor a follower of Jesus begin to see the true narrative begin to be lived out and believed in our lives. Wow. You are going deep with that next level because that, yeah, that's a great place to go though. So what is the counter to that? What is the counter to this idea that I am not enough? Um, that it, that is this, I am, I am a divinely designed sacred being who was in the mind of God before I existed. And I am exactly what God intended me to be. Um, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. Um, my value is determined by who God says I am. Now, none of that prevents me from trying in my life to, you know, eat well and live well and do well. Um, but my identity can't be determined by what other people say. It has to be on, on who God has said that I am. And, you know, we look to our parents, first of all, our parents are the primary people we look to, to say, who are you? And most of us, uh, well, all of us were raised by human parents, so they failed somewhere to, to, to say that we were enough, um, even the best ones. So um, I tell a story in the book about my dad. Um, I was a pretty good athlete in high school. I was a good basketball player. And I tell the story about how one weekend I'd scored 51 points, 26 one night on a Friday night, 25 on the on the Saturday night. And I, when I came in, uh, my dad was on the couch. He waited up for me. And when I walked in, he didn't greet me with a hug and great job, pal. He greeted me with, uh, you know how many free throws you missed tonight? And I said, um, I think, and he goes, you missed four. And I said, yeah, that's right. And he goes, do you know why you missed them? And I was like, no. He goes, well, you need to work on that. And I was like, and I remember thinking, what a jerk, you know? I mean, I knew my dad loved me to some extent, but, but wow, why does he lead with that? You know, what, why? And um, it wasn't actually until I was actually in, in counseling and I told that story. Uh, and at the, uh, later on, my therapist goes, isn't that fascinating that, oh, I, I forgot a key part of the story. My dad said, your feet were wrong. Your stance was wrong. Hmm. Anyway, I walked away from that really mad. But then, so at the end, the counselor said, isn't that fascinating? He was watching your feet. I was like, what? He said, your dad was in the stands. He couldn't help you, but he was watching your feet. Like he wanted to help you. He just, mm. you know, he didn't, he didn't know how to help. That was his way of loving me, but it came across lousy, you know, like that. What I heard was you're not enough because you miss four free throws. In his mind, he was like, how can I make Jim do better than he did? So, I mean, even the best parents fail. And we just live in that world where we communicate that somehow you're just not enough. And boy, but again, what, where does that come from? Because in our soul, we need to know that we are enough. 
the most important person in your life thinks about you. Mm, that's good. And that has always stuck with me. And I think, Doug, to your point, the reason why so many pastors struggle with this is that somehow that the their what they think the congregation thinks of them has become of ultimate importance in their life. You know, that somehow the, the, the numbers, the results, the decisions, that all of that has become more important than what their family, how, how their family feels about mm-hmm. them, and maybe even then how God feels about them. And so, Dr. Smith, you're right. Yeah, it is about, I think it is about going back to what does God say about me? Mm-hmm. And it, the hard part is that's become such a pithy answer in so many ways. You know, it's like, yeah, but it's the right one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, what God says about you matters because he mm-hmm. likes you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's the unchanging part, right? That's, that's the thing that's not precarious. Um, are, are, people will say things. I mean, one, one t- we may give a great sermon and then people, oh my gosh, that was amazing. And then we have, have a dud and people are like, yeah, he's okay. You know, it's like, <laughs> we're, we, we do the best we do. I know I, I just preached last Sunday. I mean, I, I hope that people thought it was helpful. I, but I have to be careful and think, I don't want them to say, wow, he's a good preacher. I want them to say, wow, he knows an amazing God. I, I think that there's, first of all, I, I just, I keep thinking back to what you said in the first part of our conversation where you challenged people who are looking to get into ministry. If, if you don't care for your own self, then leave now. Yeah. And I, I think there's something really important about about that from the perspective of I, I can see a pastor hearing that statement and thinking, maybe I should leave because I've done such a terrible job. But what I appreciate about what you're saying is even in the conversation with with your therapist of you had this narrative in your mind that your dad thought you were, you, you know, you, you, you saw that you weren't enough as a basketball player because of what your dad said. But then as in, in that beautiful moment with the therapist, you, it kind of transformed the entire dialogue to like, actually, he was caring for me in a way that I didn't hear it. And so I think there's probably moments where some of the pastors and leaders who are listening are thinking, man, I, I have tanked at this soul care stuff for, for years and maybe I should just quit. But it seems like what you're inviting people to is, no, don't quit. Just start caring. Yeah. Like start that process, begin some of these rhythms. And so if you're a, if you're a full on novice, you've survived the, the, the pandemic craziness as a, as a pastor or a leader, and you're feeling super depleted, where would you say is like, Hey, here's a great place to begin, not just as a practice, but as character formation. I I would say, um, we, we have to offload success in ministry that, um, we feel like that, that, that is the most important thing. You know, I mentioned that we, we think about the ABCs as the, uh, the measure of church success. Really, it's, it's, it's always been D. It's always been discipleship. It's, that's, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I like the word apprentice. Make apprentices, make, make students of Jesus. That's your job. My job is to be a, a student of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus. And that's the most important job that I have is to be with him and learn how to live like him through his presence and power and provision with me. And that's what I want to teach other people to do. And, you know, we, with, with the ABCs, we may say, oh, well, there's a church of 5,000 people. And I like to call them the golf cart churches. You know, they're so big, they have to have golf carts in the parking lot to take people in. That, that's a successful church, the golf cart church. Well, no, if they may not be. 
if they're not making disciples. But if, if there could be a church of 75 in a, in a rundown building, but they are making disciples. They are, they are producing people of, of character, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, living out, learning how to love their enemy, bless those who curse them. That's what we're called to do. So mm. it this takes courage because, you know, when I'm working with pastors, I'll often say, I understand the pressure. You have your own pressure with the ABCs. And then you've got, if you have an Episcopal form of government, you probably have a bishop or a superintendent above you. And then you got people in the pews who also are evaluating the church on the ABCs. And so it just takes great courage to say that is not the metric yeah. that I'm going to use. Man, what a, what a great conversation. Yeah. I just want to, Dr. Smith, thank you so much for um, bringing this front and center for writing these books and for writing this probably the most personal of the series, which, yeah. you know, you really laid some things out for us and we appreciate yeah. you sharing your journey with us. So just one last question. And I apologize because you probably get many questions like this, but I hope this one's slightly different. Um, as I was thinking about how do we want to end this with, with James Bryan Smith, the thing that I really wanted to know was something about Dallas Willard and what it is, is what is something about Dallas Willard that most people don't know? Like, was he a closet Star Wars fan? Did he enjoy rollerblading? Uh, was Did he make great salsa? Like, what is it about Willard that most people don't know that you, because of your relationship with him, got to know that might bless us to hear? You know, there's a bunch of things, Bob. Um, I mean, he he was he was a uh, a true. I mean, he he was a Renaissance man. He knew things about everything. We could talk about football, college football, basketball, NBA. We could talk sports. We could talk uh, world culture. We were going into a um, – he and I were checking into a hotel. I remember it was in San Francisco, and the woman at the desk had a – she had an accent, and I could tell it sounded European, but I didn't, wasn't sure where – and I just said, so where are you from? And she says, I'm from Hungary. And I turned to Dallas, and I said – I don't know anything about Hungary. And Dallas, without being judgmental or missing a beat, he just says, well, the economy right now is very strong in Hungary, but they're going through these political... And he reels off this little <laughs> three-minute thing about the state of Hungary. And I thought, how do you have that loaded up? How do you just have that? But I think the thing I would say, though, is that he was he was really funny. And you do get that if you listen to some of his talks, but he was so funny. I tell the story in... Um, the book Becoming Dallas Willard, uh, the chapter I wrote about that, about how one time when he got we got done teaching, and they they had us staying in this this uh, this house together, and so we we're house sitting in these these this this place, and uh, so it was the end of the day, and Dallas he would wear like those t shirts the what do you call them like tank top kind of t shirts underneath his dress shirt, but he was in he was in Bermuda shorts he had the tank top t shirt but he left his his uh, his, uh, his wingtips on. I don't know why, but he did. <laughs> and we're sitting there watching TV and he gets up to change the channel. That's, that's how long ago this was, this was in the nineties. He gets up to change the channel and he turns to like a, 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 a Spanish channel that had salsa music, these dancers and Dallas starts dancing. So imagine Dallas Willard, one of the greatest <laughs> philosophers in American history. And he's in wingtips, Bermuda shorts, a tank top t-shirt, and he's dancing salsa. <laughs> And just laughing, so that's 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 an image I I can't unsee that. <laughs> Neither can we. Uh, I 
imagine he's doing it in heaven, so I can't wait to see him. He's probably going to greet me that way. (laughs) Dr. Smith, would you leave us with a benediction just for the pastors and ministry leaders that might be listening? Yeah. You know, I love the Aaronic blessing. And one of the things I love about that is is that idea of God making his face to to shine upon us. And um, and Dallas would often say that his way of understanding that was to, that God was smiling. And so my, my blessing would be, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May God smile at you, smile upon you, who you are and the work that you've done, the ministry that you've taken on, with even the successes and the failures, that God is looking at you and smiling because you are the apple of God's eye. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of MMP. Our passion is to serve, partner with, and equip hungry pastors and kingdom leaders just like you. Have you signed up for the Kairos Partnership's free weekly newsletter called Five Things in Five Minutes? It's free and it's delivered to your inbox every Tuesday morning. It provides valuable thoughts, links, questions, and quotes to equip you for the ministry and leadership journey. And the entire thing can be read in five minutes or less. To sign up, log on to kairospartnerships.org slash 5T5M. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.